Eliminating ethical ambiguity from software license compliance by enforcing your corporate code of conduct. From the Gartner Conference, this is Eric Chabro, and that's the title of a report from Gartner, co-written by my guest, Victoria Barber, a Gartner Research Director. Welcome, Victoria. Hi, nice to meet you. What are the ethical ambiguities uh, in dealing with software licenses? It's something I never really thought of before and it just fascinates me. Well, software contracts and software licensing are very complex and uh, if you speak to lawyers, they'll probably tell you that software contracts are some of the most difficult to interpret of all, all contracts, probably even worse than, um, than contracts for house purchases. And why so? Because technology changes so much, the contracts are written to try to cover all eventualities, but nobody really knows what the technology is that's going to happen. So somebody writing a a software contract 10 years ago was trying to predict how you were going to be using the software. So they were trying to allow for circumstances that might cover virtualization, but the outsourcing that that we've, we've started doing the idea that we might start offshoring. They did probably didn't think about cloud, but they were trying to make sure that whatever happened, that was covered in the contract. So there's a lot of fluffy terminology at times where you'll find that um, you know, the, the end users and the vendors have different opinions on what that terminology means, and it's very difficult to pin it down. Can you give an example or two? For example, um, there's been a lot of discussion about what the definition is of a processor. So, um, you know, at one point it was quite easy to tell what a processor was because you got them in single units and then processors started having multiple cores so suddenly people were saying well actually you know each of those cores counts as a processor and then there was some discussion about it so people started putting processor core factors in or value units so that x you know the number of processors processor licenses you needed to cover a given number of cores in a server wasn't actually necessarily the same as either the number of processors or the number of cores, it was somewhere in between. And now you've got the got core licenses, but now it's what is a core, because if you turn hyperthreading on, then actually it works as more cores than it really has physically. So the whole physical and virtual thing has also caused problems. After all, if you have a server license, and that covers the physical server, but you can have lots of virtual servers within that. So therefore, you've got some discussions about, you know, ethically, if if you've licensed for one server and you've now created half a dozen servers within that same physical server, ethically should you be paying for those half a dozen virtual servers or should you be saying, look, you know, I'm still complying with the terms of the license. So there's a lot of discussion around some of the terminology here and how we define things. And when people are looking at these contracts, are they complying with the letter or the spirit of the contract? And so the software vendors are starting to change their terms and conditions. They're starting to put some of the terms and conditions in on hyperlinks so that those may actually change and if you're not checking them regularly you may find that the terms and conditions in your contract have changed without you knowing that again creates an ethical problem because you know how can you keep up to date with that is it ethical of the vendors to make those changes without notifying you asset management becomes very difficult to do because you're trying to 
keep up with an amorphous mass of constantly changing technology and contracts and terminology and there's, it never always exactly fits. It's very unusual to get a software contract that absolutely exactly fits with the use case that you've got. The contracts are designed to allow for a lot of different options. They're, they're not designed to fit your particular use case, but they're designed to be generic and work for a lot of different people. So does this require organizations, the customers, to hire more lawyers? I mean, <laughs> it sounds like it's a lot, the legal profession could benefit from this. Um, I think we'll find most of the software copyright and software contract specialists are employed by the software vendors, and that's another thing that clients need to remember. Sometimes in audit situations, you do see clients who are very upset and angry by the outcomes and you know, feel that they're in the right and want to go to litigation, but their legal departments aren't specialised enough, and um, the software vendors do employ a lot of legal experts and probably, therefore, are in a much stronger position if things do go to litigation. Interestingly, the, the only companies who do tend to employ a similar number of experts in, in this area to the software vendors tend to be the mobile phone companies because they're doing a lot of technology litigation. Is the legal system. Are the courts the only way that this is being resolved or are there some innovative ways that that people are trying to uh, come together on this? It doesn't tend to go to litigation because the costs involved, you know, lawyers will often say that you know the cost involved in going to litigation is going to be far higher than the cost of actually purchasing licenses in the way that the vendor wants to or making the technology changes that are needed to comply with the license terms and conditions. It very rarely goes to litigation and if even if it does, often settlements are made out of court. That means that sometimes it's very difficult to get clarification on these issues because there hasn't been a legal judgment on it. Is there any difference between, say, here in the United States and Europe or elsewhere? Um, because things don't tend to actually go to litigation, we can't really tell. We do know that the, you know, obviously you, you need, need to take legal advice on this, but often lawyers will say that you know, whoever wrote the contract will be considered to be the person, you know, if, if the contract is badly written, that will reflect on the person who wrote the contract. But really what's important is that people start thinking about these ambiguities when they're sitting down to create these contracts, but also think about putting in place the controls so that when they sign up to a contract, they know that they can manage their use of the software within the terms and conditions of the contract, and that if things change, rather than making assumptions about the interpretation, they go back and look very carefully at the terms and conditions and if they need to change the way they use the software, then they need to go back to square one and think about, actually, does this fit with the terms and conditions? Can we still comply based on the changes we're making? Rather than feeling under pressure to interpret it, they should be taking legal advice, they should be taking expert advice. Um, We get a lot of calls to Gartner to say, how would the vendor interpret this? Is there information about how they've dealt with other people? How are other people approaching this issue? There is information out there. There is support and advice within the asset management community. There is a lot of discussion around some of these things. Um, Vendors do need to try and improve and create clarity. There is a campaign for clear licensing running, which is is running out of the UK, um, where they are talking to vendors about some of the problems that people have with these contracts to try and clarify licensing so that both sides can deal with this in a collaborative way rather than it being a confrontational issue in the event of an audit where everybody's insisting that they're right. Are there any security implications with this? Well, I guess 
there are a number of, of security issues with this. Firstly, in the event of an audit, if you're being audited and having to prove that you're complying with the terms and conditions of the software, the information that you're providing to the vendor, if the audit isn't managed properly, could be compromising. If there is a licensing delta, you don't particularly want that to become public. So managing software audits is important. Generally, contracts include a right for the vendor to audit to check that you're in compliance with the contract and often there is a need to run third-party tools or scripts because clients don't have the information easily available they don't have the tools in place themselves to provide the data that uh, that the vendors want and if, if information security aren't involved with asset management in running those audits then sometimes the audits aren't carried out according to the audit management best practice sometimes the data is not controlled and managed in a way that perhaps security would like and often the data can be sensitive because information about users, about the devices, um, about the way the software is being used as about the products in some cases you don't want your you know don't want people to know what products you're using so the information that's supplied to auditors is can be very sensitive as can the results that they come back with so from a security perspective that data really needs to be looked after thank you victoria thank you very much i've been speaking with victoria barber of gartner this is eric charbro information security media group